This is VOA1, The Hits. Welcome to Learning English, a daily 30-minute program from The Voice of America. I'm Dan Friedel. And I'm Katie Weaver. This program is aimed at English learners. So we speak slowly and we use words and phrases especially written for people learning English. Today on the show, I tell about a former pilot in Cyprus who now has a career in cheesemaking. We'll also hear a report from Gregory Stockel. And Gina Bennett brings us this week's Ask a Teacher. We close the show with an American story. Today we hear The Open Boat by Stephen Crane. But now... On a recent cold winter night in the Cypriot capital, Nicosia, long lines of people began to form in a public parking area. The crowd was gathering for the arrival of cheesemaker Pantelis Pantelli and the load of halloumi he had for sale. Pantelli is a relative newcomer to the tradition of halloumi making. He was a pilot with Cyprus Airways until 2013. He lost the job as the former company started closing down. Pantelli decided to try a very different line of work, cheesemaking. The man had found his new career. But now the newcomer has become an unlikely defender of traditional cheesemaking for Cyprus's prized halloumi. The European Union named halloumi a product of Protected Designation of Origin, or PDO, in 2021. That means that only approved producers from Cyprus can market the cheese under that name. In exchange for the PDO, Cyprus agreed to increase the quantity of ewe or goat milk to just over 50% by July 2024. But Cypriot farmers are protesting the agreement over a dispute about the ingredients. Industry stakeholders say ewe and goat's milk is highly seasonal and could therefore affect production levels. Cheesemakers had threatened to shut their operations because there was not enough milk, and cattle-raising farmers were angered at the threat to the milk cow market. So, Cyprus officials now plan to delay the agreement to 2029. Soft, rubbery halloumi can be eaten raw. There are also many ways to cook it, over a fire or heated in liquid or oil. The cheese keeps its shape well in cooking. 
It is a popular food and the island's second largest export. Medicines are first. But there is a dispute within Cyprus about what makes true halloumi cheese. Should it be made from cow's milk, which has a mellower taste? Or should it be made from goat and ewe milk, as traditionalists argue? Pantelli started making halloumi with guidance from a family member. It was all trial and error with a small pot, then a bigger pot, and, just like Steve Jobs, in our garage, he said. He uses ewe's milk to make his halloumi. He cooks the milk in rennet, which thickens the liquid to a solid form called a curdle. After resting, curdles are cut and reheated. Pantelli adds salt and puts them in a solution called brine for a few hours. Then they are done, and he prepares for market. Pantelli only has a permit to sell directly to consumers, and he is limited to producing 150 liters of milk a day. But his product is popular. He makes videos on TikTok and the social media service X to let people know where to find him. He usually sells all his cheese within two hours of opening sales. Nobody is making the real thing anymore, and that is our aim, Pantelli said. He spoke to the Reuters news agency while standing near about 300 noisy sheep at his farm west of Nicosia. But some farmers on the Mediterranean island say that Pantelli's method is not workable for all. Nikos Papakriaku is head of the organization that represents cow farmers. He said that based on an older 1985 trade agreement, halloumi cheese is made out of not only goat and ewe's milk, but cow's milk as well. He says the mellow taste of cow's milk has permitted halloumi to capture overseas markets. The PDO says it should smell like a farm, he said. He questioned if people would buy it if it smelled like goats. The United Nations Environment Program, or UNEP, said in a report on Wednesday that public waste creation will greatly increase by 2050. 
The rise will cause hundreds of billions of dollars of damage through biodiversity loss, climate change, and deadly pollution, UNEP reports. UNEP's Global Waste Management Outlook 2024 says worldwide waste creation would greatly increase unless governments take urgent preventative measures. The world's fastest-growing economies will drive much of the increase in waste. These include some countries in Asia and sub-Saharan Africa that are already struggling to deal with current public waste levels. The report predicts municipal solid waste generation will grow from 2.3 billion tons in 2023 to 3.8 billion tons by 2050. UNIP projected the yearly cost of waste treatment by the middle of the century would rise to $640 billion worldwide. That represents a more than 75% increase from 2020. That year, the world produced an estimated 2.1 billion tons of public solid waste, which excludes industrial waste. Damage caused by the growing waste would account for about $443 billion of the total cost. The report, called Beyond an Age of Waste, Turning Rubbish into a Resource, was released during the UN Environment Assembly in Kenya this week. The writers argue that humanity has moved backwards over the past 10 years. They say humans are creating more waste, more pollution, and more climate-changing gases. Waste prevention measures and improved waste treatment could reduce those costs, the report said. But it notes there are major barriers to such reforms including weak enforcement systems. Negotiators are working toward a treaty to deal with the especially damaging and dangerous pollution from plastics. They are beginning a fourth round of talks in April. UNEP Executive Director Inger Anderson said she is hopeful they will complete the agreement by the end of this year. Environmentalists and fossil fuel producers continue to disagree about the terms of the agreement. They especially dispute whether the deal should center on reducing plastics production or increasing recycling and reuse. There is an interest, and especially among the countries that are producing raw polymer, but as I keep telling them, this is not an anti-plastic treaty, Anderson told Reuters. 
noting there would still be a need for plastics and vehicles and medical equipment. Raw polymers are used in the creation of plastic materials. Anderson said she hopes no delegations would work to block progress on the treaty, but instead find a way forward that actually takes into account the fact that we are drowning in plastic. I'm Gregory Stockel. VOA Learning English has launched a new program for children. It is called Let's Learn English with Anna. The new course aims to teach children American English through asking and answering questions and experiencing fun situations. For more information, visit our website, learningenglish.voanews.com. Hello. This week on Ask a Teacher, we answer a question from Mequinent and Tajen. Must versus have to. I find it difficult to differentiate them. You must wear your uniform in the classroom. Or you have to wear your uniform in the classroom. Which one is correct? Thank you for this question. Must and have to can have the same meaning. We have talked about must and have to in an earlier Ask a Teacher. Both of the sentences you provide are correct. Sometimes it is better to choose must over have to or have to over must. When we use must in spoken English, usually it is to express something we think is likely. In that case, it is similar in meaning to the word probably. You must be cold after working all day in the rain. You are probably cold after working all day in the rain. My supervisor must not care about the budget cuts. My supervisor probably doesn't care about the budget cuts. But we also use it as we use have to, although more commonly in writing. Climate change must be stopped. You must see the doctor before Friday. Have to, have got to, and its reduced form, gotta, are used very often in spoken language to communicate requirement. I have to get up at 5 a.m. tomorrow. You gotta relax. So, which sentence should you use? It depends on the context. Are you wanting to express a probability? Or are you trying to give an order or announce a rule? And now we must say goodbye. We have to check the mail for new questions about American English. If you have one, send us an email 
at learningenglish at voanews.com. And that's Ask a Teacher. I'm Gina Bennett. And now, the Learning English Program, American Stories. Today, we hear The Open Boat by Stephen Crane. The story is about something that really happened to Crane in 1896. He was traveling from the United States to Cuba as a newspaper reporter. One night, his ship hit a sandbar. It sank in the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Florida. Most of the people on board got into lifeboats. Crane was among the last to leave the ship, along with the captain, the cook, and a sailor. These four men climbed into the only remaining lifeboat. The boat was so small that no one believed it could stay afloat for very long. None of the men thought he would ever reach the shore. But they fought the rough seas bravely with all their strength. Would they finally reach land? Here is Shep O'Neill with the first part of the story. The small lifeboat bounced from wave to wave in the rough seas of the Atlantic. The four men in the boat could not see the sky. The waves rose too high. The waves, with their white tops, pushed at the open boat with angry violence. Every man thought each wave would be his last. Surely the boat would sink and he would drown. The man thought that most adults would need a bathtub larger than the boat they were sailing. The waves were huge, and each created a problem in guiding the direction of the boat. For two days since the ship sank, the four men had been struggling to reach land. But there was no land to be seen. All the men saw were violent waves, which rose and came fiercely down on them. The men sat in the boat, wondering if there was any hope for them. The ship's cook sat in the bottom of the boat. He kept looking at the fifteen centimeters which separated him from the ocean. The boat had only two wooden oars. They were so thin, it seemed as if they would break against the waves. The sailor, named Billy, directed the boat's movement with one of the oars. The newspaper reporter pulled the second oar. He wondered why he was there in the boat. The fourth man was the captain of the ship that had sunk. He lay in the front of the small boat. 
His arm and leg were hurt when the ship sank. The captain's face was sad. He had lost his ship and many of his sailors. But he looked carefully ahead, and he told Billy when to turn the boat. Keep her a little more south, Billy, he said. A little more south, sir, the sailor repeated. Sitting in the boat was like sitting on a wild horse. As each wave came, the boat rose and fell, like a horse starting toward a fence too high to jump. The problem was that after successfully floating over one wave, you find that there is another one behind it, just as strong and ready to flood your boat. As each wall of water came in, it hid everything else that the men could see. The waves came in silence. Only their white tops made threatening noises. In the weak light, the faces of the men must have looked gray. Their eyes must have shone in strange ways as they looked out at the sea. The sun rose slowly into the sky. The men knew it was the middle of the day because the color of the sea changed from slate gray to emerald green with gold lights. And the white foam on the waves looked like falling snow. As the lifeboat bounced from the top of each wave, the wind tore through the hair of the men. As the boat dropped down again, the water fell just past them. The top of each wave was a hill from which the men could see for a brief period a wide area of shining sea. The cook said the men were lucky because the wind was blowing toward the shore. If it started blowing the other way, they would never reach land. The reporter and the sailor agreed, but the captain laughed in a way that expressed humor and tragedy all in one. He asked, Do you think we've got much of a chance now, boys? This made the others stop talking. To express any hope at this time... They felt to be childish and stupid. But they also did not want to suggest there was no hope, so they were silent. Oh, well, said the captain. We'll get ashore all right. But there was something in his voice that made them think, as the sailor said, Yes, if this wind holds... Seagulls flew near and far. Sometimes the birds sat down on the sea in groups near brown seaweed that rolled on the waves. The anger of the sea was no more to them than it was to a group of chickens a thousand miles away on land, 
Often the seagulls came very close and stared at the men with black bead-like eyes. The men shouted angrily at them, telling them to be gone. The sailor and the reporter kept rowing with the thin wooden oars. Sometimes they sat together, each using an oar. Sometimes one would pull on both oars while the other rested. Brown pieces of seaweed appeared from time to time. They were like islands, bits of earth that did not move. They showed the men in the boat that it was slowly making progress toward land. As the boat was carried to the top of a great wave, the captain looked across the water. He said that he saw the lighthouse at Mosquito Inlet. The cook also said he saw it. The reporter searched the western sky. See it, said the captain. No, said the reporter slowly. I don't see... Anything. Look again, said the captain. He pointed. It's exactly in that direction. This time, the reporter saw a small thing on the edge of the moving horizon. It was exactly like the point of a pin. Think we'll make it, captain? he asked. If this wind holds and the boat doesn't flood, we can't do much else, said the captain. It would be difficult to describe the brotherhood of men that was here established on the sea. Each man felt it warmed him. They were a captain, a sailor, a cook, and a reporter. And they were friends. The reporter knew even at the time that this friendship was the best experience of his life. All obeyed the captain. He was a good leader. He always spoke in a low voice and calmly. I wish we had a sail, he said, to give you two boys a chance to rest. So they used his coat and one of the oars to make a sail, and the boat moved much more quickly. The lighthouse had been slowly growing larger. At last, from the top of each wave, the men in the boat could see land. Slowly, the land seemed to rise from the sea. Soon, the men could see two lines, one black and one white. They knew that the black line was formed by trees, 
and the white line was the sand. At last, the captain saw a house on the shore, and the lighthouse became even larger. The keeper of the lighthouse should be able to see us now, said the captain. He'll notify the life-saving people. Slowly and beautifully, the land rose from the sea. The wind came again. Finally, the men heard a new sound, the sound of waves breaking and crashing on the shore. We'll never be able to make the lighthouse now, said the captain. Swing her head a little more north, Billy. A little more north, sir, said the sailor. The men watched the shore grow larger. They became hopeful. In an hour, perhaps, they would be on land. The men struggled to keep the boat from turning over. They were used to balancing in the boat. Now they rode this wild horse of a boat like circus men. The water poured over them. The reporter thought he was now wet to the skin, but he felt in the top pocket of his coat and found eight cigars. Four were wet, but four were still dry. One of the men found some dry matches. Each man lit a cigar. The four men sailed in their boat with the belief of a rescue shining in their eyes. They smoked their big cigars and took a drink of water. That's all the time we have for today's show, but join us again tomorrow for another VOA Learning English program. Thanks for listening. I'm Katie Weaver. <laughs>